When you are considering how radiation impacts the human body, and a genuine expert such as the UK's Dr. Ian Farrelly tells you... Quite a few radiation scientists think that radiation is linked with aging. It's part of the reason why we're not immortal, why we die. As we age, we can tell that our bodily functions, our livers, our kidneys, our skin, our brains, all deteriorate. And the reason why they deteriorate is because partly it has to do with the yearly insult of background radiation. Well, when you learn that's what we face every day, everywhere, just from background radiation, to say nothing of the radiation hit we take from nuclear accidents, so-called permitted radiation releases from reactors, weapons manufacturing, uranium mining, unremediated radioactive waste, improper storage and transport of rad waste, as well as all the radioactive particles from every one of the 2,121 atmospheric bomb explosions still circling the globe in the jet stream, just waiting for raindrops to form around the particulate matter and take it down to Earth. That is when you start to realize the enormity of the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, an interview with Dr. Ian Fairley, a British scientist and researcher who explains that how radiation is measured in terms of impact on the human body really matters. And there's a huge difference between the biological effects of ionizing radiation 7 report, BEER-7, which is the gold standard currently in use, and the pressure on the NRC from special interests to turn the way we measure radiation into the fake info of radiation is good for you, otherwise known as hormesis. Ian Fairley helps us understand the nature of the problem and why radiation is not good for human beings and other living creatures. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report, activist shoutouts, and more honest nuclear information than showed up at the entire royal wedding. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 22nd, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S., where on Friday, May 18, the Columbia Generating Station, the nuclear reactor on the site of the Hanford Reservation in southeast Washington state, experienced its third unplanned closure in the last 18 months 
It is currently in hot shutdown and has not been started as of Monday evening, May 21st. It was shut down also in August of 2017, a month after the plant's waste shipping license was suspended by the Washington State Department of Health for shipping waste that was seven times more radioactive than labeled. It was also shut down in December of 2016. The nuclear facility is located along the Columbia River on federal property at the Hanford Nuclear Complex, 10 miles north of Richland, Washington. And because the plant's location is on the Columbia River, that makes it a unique health and safety hazard to the Portland area, according to Physicians for Social Responsibility's clean energy organizer, Damon Mott's story. As Mimi Gurman of No Nukes Northwest stated, this is a scram. That means an emergency stop from full power to dead, not going anywhere. She went on to say, with each scram, the components that make up the nuclear plant, electrical lines, plumbing, valves, nuts and bolts, switches, water pressure, etc., degrade exponentially. She also points out that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's re- event report, the mandatory reporting system of any problems at a nuclear reactor, did not even mention the word scram. And Julie Wirt of Radiation Watch pointed out that there were elevated radiation readings in Richland and also in Spokane, Washington, three days before the scram was announced. There was rain in both locations on that day, so no telling whether this was a rainout or something directly related to the problems at CGS. Well, that certainly qualifies for the duck (laughs) and cover report. So let's take a look at some of the other problems with nuclear reactors in just the last week. On May 16, Arkansas Nuclear in Arkansas was on hot standby because of an automatic reactor trip due to loss of main feed water pump. (coughs) Same day, South Texas Nuclear in Texas had two separate grass fires in the owner-controlled area of the plant. (coughs) Same day, May 16, a non-licensed contractor supervisor had a confirmed positive for a controlled substance during a random fitness for duty test. (coughs) In that same one-week time frame, Farley in Alabama was on hot standby, and there were problems at Calvert Cliffs in Maryland, Brunswick in North Carolina, Prairie Island in Minnesota, and Clinton in Illinois. Meanwhile, in South Carolina, a state agency says South Carolina Electric and Gas Company, or SCENG, is refusing to give up records that could be used to justify rolling back monthly power bills that the utility charges customers for the failed VC Summer nuclear construction project. The state's Office of Regulatory Staff says it needs the records to better understand what went wrong with the failed effort to build two reactors in Fairfield County, northwest of Columbia. According to the regulatory staff, the information being withheld by SCENG includes summaries of auditors' reports, a 2016 estimate of the cost to complete the nuclear construction project, records given to the FBI and other law enforcement agencies that were investigating possible criminal fraud in the construction project, and meeting notes about the Bechtel Report, 
a study that outlined massive problems with the project at least two years before SCENG publicly revealed them. Regulatory staff is seeking the documents as part of its legal effort to roll back the $27 a month charge that SCENG continues to charge its residential customers for the bungled nuclear plant. That's $324 a year. And the ratepayers should be paying that back. An interesting report from Bloomberg states that more than a quarter of U.S. nuclear power plants don't make enough money to cover their operating costs, raising the specter of more early retirements. The article states that of the 66 nuclear power plants operating 99 reactors in the United States, 24 are either scheduled to close or probably won't make money through 2021. This according to Nicholas Steckler, an analyst with Bloomberg's New Energy Finance. However, he points out that the average U.S. nuclear power plant is still expected to make money before taxes, especially on the East Coast. And the industry has had success conniving, excuse me, uh, convincing policymakers in New York, Illinois, and New Jersey to take steps towards bailing out struggling reactors thanks to their lies about being carbon-free, sustainable, green, and emissions-free. All claimed by the industry and none of it true. But the U.S. Energy Department is currently weighing a March request from First Energy Corporation for government aid to help keep money-losing nuclear and coal-fired power plants online. Hey, capitalism, guys, capitalism. If it fails, let it fail. Just ask the buggy whip makers who had to see Henry Ford take away their employment. Didn't see an underwriting program for them. And actor Alec Baldwin is not just a great Trump impersonator on Saturday Night Live. He is a serious, long-term committed anti-nuclear supporter. He published an op-ed piece this week in the app.com which stands for Asbury Park Press in New Jersey, in which he says, Governor Phil Murphy has pledged an all-renewable energy future for New Jersey by 2050-2050. He is to be commended. But that goal won't be achieved by doling out $300 million annually to PSEG and Exelon to bail out the Salem-Hope Creek nukes in Salem County, as proposed by a bill overwhelmingly approved by the Democratic-controlled New Jersey legislature. Those millions would come from ordinary citizens paying their electric bill. He goes on to call the bill a preposterous, ratepayer-funded bailout. It's interesting enough, we'll have a link to this up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. This episode is number 361. In the past few weeks, we've reported regularly on House Bill 3053, which passed the House of Representatives and is on its way to the Senate, which opened up the way for Yucca Mountain to once again be pursued as an ill-advised, though politically expedient target for high-level nuclear waste from around the country. It also moves forward the proposal for a high-level, quote-unquote, interim nuclear waste dump to be created in New Mexico or West Texas. Holtec International plans to store up to 100,000 tons of the nation's most dangerous nuclear reactor waste for as long as 120 years near Carlsbad, New Mexico. 
Right. Like 120 years is the definition of interim. In response, community members are touring Albuquerque, Roswell, Carlsbad, Hobbs, Artesia, Gallup, Santa Fe, and other areas that are all along the rail route through which the waste could be shipped in an attempt to call attention to the issue and urge residents to attend the NRC's scheduled public meetings and to submit written comments. One of those leading this call to action tour is Leona Morgan of Dineno Nukes and Hall No, who we interviewed last month for Nuclear Hot Seat number 356. We caught Leona's on site report before last night's NRC meeting in Gallup, New Mexico. Here's what she had to say. I'm here with the Nuclear Issues Study Group. We're in Gallup, New Mexico, and the NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, is hosting a public scoping meeting here tonight. And our group, we've been doing outreach. We went to the flea market here in town about a month ago, and then this past Saturday, we've gotten about 400 letters signed in Gallup alone, and altogether about 1,700 letters to the NRC for their scoping period to tell them we do not consent. We do not consent to high-level radioactive waste coming to New Mexico from over 100 nuclear reactors nationwide. And we do not consent to the national transport issues that it creates. This is the most highly radioactive waste ever created. And so tonight, we're going to hear from the NRC. Right now, it's uh, the what, what they call a open house. And so the open house is just a poster session where we can go and talk to the NRC before the actual meeting. The comment period has started on March 30th and goes until July 30th. So people, everyone out there, you have plenty of time to send letters as long as they get submitted before July 30th. The open house goes until 6 p.m. And then after that, they will start the presentation by the NRC and then we will hear from the public. So the public is allowed to make comments and anyone can sign up to speak. So far, every meeting, we've had more speakers against the project and less speakers who support the project. Most of those who support it have some type of invested interest in it, meaning they are part of the Eddie Lee Energy Alliance or they are people with the Holtec company and so all of those who have spoken at the three past meetings definitely did a good job speaking out against this project. And we hope we hear from everyone in Gallup and we want to pack the house. We know that the conference center has capacity for 200 people. And we're hoping that all of you out there that are who, who are listening, come out. It doesn't matter if you're late, just come in and show your support. So if you need any information, you can go to nonuclearwaste.org or you can follow us on Facebook, like our page, facebook.com backslash halt Holtec. Don't forget to send your comments. Thank you. And just remember, we don't want it. Oh, one more thing. So behind me is the model cask that we've been traveling with around the state. This is a model of what the actual transport casks look like. The transport casks will be much larger than that and they will be very heavy, about the same weight or more than the locomotive of a train. And so we're concerned that this is uh, too heavy for the railroads and if it's too heavy for what the railroads can withstand, that means an accident waiting to happen. 
So Holtec is proposing to bring 10,000 of these to New Mexico and they would be coming through any communities between reactors and the site. So pretty much nationwide, whoever's living close to railroads might be at risk of some type of exposure if you get too close to these transport casks and possible accidents, which we don't want and that's why we're here to stop this project. We want to prevent it and you can help by submitting comments. Leona Morgan. If you look at the photo on our site, or if you have seen the video of Leona's report, you'll notice in the background an inflatable mock radioactive waste cask that has been touring New Mexico to draw attention and opposition to the proposed consolidated interim storage radioactive waste dump. It is the work of University of New Mexico student Vincent LaRosa and part of his interactive art exhibit entitled Radioactive Colonialism, Desecration, and My Way to Wholeness. One additional point about the transport of this radioactive waste? There were train crashes in Odessa, Texas on May 1st when 10 cars of an eastbound train carrying sand derailed and seven of the cars fell over. This happened only two weeks after an April 18 train collision in nearby Monahans, Texas, when an eastbound Union Pacific train collided into a stationary train on the track. Both Monahans and Odessa are along the proposed trail route for the high-level nuclear waste on its way to the proposed so-called interim nuclear junkyards. Both of these train wrecks demonstrate just how dangerous transporting nuclear waste would be. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. When you're within five miles of the site of the worst nuclear reactor accident ever to happen on U.S. soil, do you think it's really a good idea to go to a coffee house called the Nuclear Bean? One so proud of its association with nuclear that they use the uranium chemistry symbol in its logo? You don't need caffeine to get jittery when you're this close to Three Mile Island. But yuck, 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 it's there, right smack in the middle of Middletown, the heart of TMI territory, where it's free to mock the nuclear accident that has caused health issues, cancers, rare cancers, and where the highest rate of thyroid cancer in the United States has been found within 50 miles of that melted-down reactor. And they claim that their products are locally sourced. So maybe it's a statement on the level of radiation around Three Mile Island that they can actually grow a tropical plant, the coffee plant, in a northern snowbound climate. You know, I wonder where the money came from to back that little establishment. And I would be very surprised if it didn't come directly from Exelon or anybody who's associated financially with Three Mile Island or any aspect of the nuclear industry. And that's why, nuclear bean brain, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. And closing out the U.S. portion on a positive note, 
Eleanor Holmes Norton became the first member of the U.S. Congress to pledge support for the U.N. Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. She is a non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives from Washington, D.C. Now let's get some votes. In Japan, the thousands of radiation monitoring posts installed in Fukushima Prefecture after the 2011 nuclear disaster began have malfunctioned nearly 4,000 times, this according to sources, as the country's Nuclear Regulation Authority prepares to remove them after spending 500 million yen, the equivalent of 4.5 million U.S. dollars, a year on repair costs. The nuclear regulators, which operate the monitoring post, plans to remove around 80% of them by the end of fiscal 2020 on the grounds that radiation levels in some areas have fallen and stabilized. And you might ask, why fiscal 2020 and when might that be? It ends on March 31st of 2020, right before the Tokyo Radioactive Olympics. I suspect that is not a coincidence. At the Fukushima site, the number of storage tanks for contaminated water and other materials has continuously increased. Until now, space for still more tanks is approaching the limit. A way to get rid of the treated water, which still contains radioactive tritium, has not yet been decided though Tokyo Electric Power Company keeps promising or threatening that they will just dump it all into the Pacific. The problem is that groundwater and other water enters the reactor buildings that suffered meltdown, where the water becomes contaminated with radiation. This produces about 160 tons of contaminated water per day. Purification devices remove many of the radioactive materials, but tritium, a radioactive isotope of hydrogen cannot be removed for technical reasons. Space for new tanks, which has been made by raising forests and other means, amounts to the equivalent of almost 32 soccer fields, and there is almost no more available vacant space. Officials of the Japanese government admit operation of tanks is close to its capacity, and the chief decommissioning officer of TEPCO said, it is impossible to continue to store the treated water forever. And back in July of 2014, the Korea Atomic Energy Research Institute outside of Seoul reported that Fukushima Daiichi's three reactor meltdowns may have emitted two to four times as much cesium-137 as the reactor catastrophe at Chernobyl. On Tuesday, May 15, North Korea said a planned summit next month between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un is at risk because of joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. North Korea also said it was ending its talks with South Korea in a statement from the country's news agency. Now, Trump has said, we'll see if the North Korean summit is on. Underlying the plans for the Singapore summit was a fundamental ambiguity over what complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula means. For Pyongyang, it is a fluid term that means a long-term process of disarmament involving all major powers in whose ranks North Korea would henceforth be counted a member. The Trump administration thought it meant, or wanted it to mean, that Kim was ready to give up the arsenal he had declared complete and operational in January. To gain some perspective on it, here is a quote from a Facebook post by Bob Alvarez, 
a former senior White House advisor on energy matters who has also visited North Korea. He wrote, Despite recent hopeful statements, it may be too late to expect the North Koreans to relinquish their nuclear arms anytime soon. After halting nuclear and long-range missile testing, Kim Jong-un has not wavered from his statement last January that North Korea must be recognized as a nuclear weapons state. Denuclearization in the eyes of North Korea also means a process in which the U.S. will reduce and change the mission of its military on the peninsula, which is predicated on resuming war with the North. A state of dormant war continues to exist and threatens to reawaken with unprecedented consequences. The first order of business is to find a path to end this war once and for all. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, when it comes to nuclear... The news is rarely good, and mainstream media isn't comfortable covering it, so the news about nuclear becomes as invisible as radiation. That's why you and so many others have learned to count on Nuclear Hot Seat to get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism, so that you have a fighting chance of knowing what's going on. We take the time and energy to get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week with fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and whenever possible, humor. Now, does having this information every week help you understand what's going on nuclear-wise? That's what we're here for. But in order to keep doing it, we need your help. If you value the kind of information Nuclear Hot Seat provides, give us a boost by sending a donation of any size. This will help us meet our weekly, monthly, and yearly expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. And for those of you who want to make a big difference, but like so many of us, you're on a little budget, that's not a problem. On the website, there's also a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. The same as you would spend if you were to take me out to sit down over a cup of coffee, maybe have a little nosh. And let me tell you, $5 donations are the mainstay of how we're able to meet our expenses every month. So please... Do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat search out and share nuclear information that helps you understand the things that the nuclear industry would really you rather not know about. Whatever you can do to help us out, trust me, you have my gratitude. Now here's this week's featured interview. Dr. Ian Fairley is a London-based independent consultant on radioactivity in the environment. He has studied radiation and radioactivity since the Chernobyl accident in 1986. He received his doctorate from Princeton on the radiological hazards of nuclear fuel reprocessing and from 2000 to 2004 was head of the Secretariat of the UK Government's Committee on Internal Radiation Risks. He has been a consultant on radiation matters to the European Parliament, local and regional governments, environmental NGOs, and private individuals. He's also been very generous with the time he shared with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. He joined me from his home in London, originally for Nuclear Hot Seat number 217, from August 18, 2015. 
Today's featured interview is with Dr. Ian Fairley. He is an independent consultant on radioactivity in the environment living in the UK. Ian has studied radiation and radioactivity since the Chernobyl accident in 1986. He received his doctorate from Princeton on the radiological hazards of nuclear fuel reprocessing and from 2000 to 2004 was head of the Secretariat of the UK Government's Committee on Internal Radiation Risks. He has been a consultant on radiation matters to the European Parliament, local and regional governments, environmental NGOs, and private individuals. Dr. Fairley joined me via Skype from his home in London. This interview was originally recorded for Nuclear Hot Seat number 217 on August 18, 2015. Ian Fairley, it is always a pleasure to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's my pleasure to you, Libby. Let's start out with the basics. Explain to the listeners what the linear no-threshold model is for determining radiation's impact and effect on us. Yeah, what it means is that as you reduce the radiation dose by a factor of two, then the results, the effects, will be reduced by a factor of two. In other words, as you go down, the relationship between dose and effect is linear. It doesn't go up and down like a yo-yo. It's straightforwardly linear, straight line. That's the first part of the LMT. The second part of the linear no threshold is the fact that there is no safe threshold. In other words, no matter how low you go, there's a little risk. The only safe dose is zero. The reason why there's so much argument uh, and exchange of views about the linear no threshold is that as you go down lower and lower and lower and lower, people think, well, there must be a safe level. But there isn't. It means that you're always going to be, have an effect. And the fact that there is no safe level upsets a lot of people. It really does. Let me give you an example of what I mean by low doses. If you were to take, say, a thousand people and give them each one millisievert of radiation, that's a small dose of radiation, we know from all of the research work that we've done that about 10 people out of those 1,000 would later die from a cancer. We 10 fatal cancers. But the thing is, we don't know which 10 people. All that would happen is, and this is a good way of understanding it, is that each of those 1,000 people would be given a negative lottery ticket. Now, your readers will be familiar with lottery tickets. Many of them will buy lottery tickets. And you'll get 10 tickets and you'll hope that one of them will win. Well, what happens here is that if you get a dose of radiation, then you are given a negative or unlucky lottery ticket. And your number may come up. Might not, but it might. Here's another example. Many people of our age used to smoke a long time ago. And all our friends used to smoke. Um, some people died from lung cancer but other people didn't. In other words, there was a bit of a lottery here. Sometimes you got it, sometimes you didn't. It's the same with radiation. Some people are going to get it, others don't. And we don't really know why. All we can do is give you the number who will die. 
And radiation doses are cumulative over time. So yes. if someone gets a millisievert in a year and doesn't develop cancer, that does not preclude the millisievert they get the following year and the year after that and the year after that. Correct. Cumulating Correct. so that they have a greater impact on health. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, all of us in the world get background levels of radiation, right? And we can work out the number of people who will die from background radiation because it so happens that the amount of background radiation we get, say, I'm just going to talk about gamma right now, not alpha from radon, but each of us gets about a millisievert a year of background radiation. So if you live to, say, you're 90, you get 90 millisieverts of background radiation. And that does involve a risk, and people will die from it. Indeed, quite a few radiation scientists think that radiation is linked with aging. It's part of the reason why we're not immortal, why we die. The key thing is this, is that um, as we age, we can tell that our bodily functions, our livers, our kidneys, our skin, our brains, all deteriorate. And the reason why they deteriorate is because partly it has to do with the yearly insult of background radiation. It damages the cells. They're not able to reproduce as quickly as or as effectively as they used to. It kills cells sometimes. And the result is we age. And that's one of the reasons why we die. It's not the only reason, by the way. There are viruses there are colds, there are infections, there are trauma, I mean, car accidents, etc. Et but, I mean, these sort of bacterial and viral infections, they are sort of like one-offs. We get a cold, and then a week or two later, we're okay. But with background radiation, it's all the time, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I've had a question about background radiation for a while, and maybe you can answer this. Okay. We seem to assume that background radiation is always there and always has been as a constant. But I'm wondering if there was ever a measurement that was taken or that we can discern from before 1945 when atmospheric bombs were being blown up so that radiation levels were increased. And do we know a rate at which this background radiation has increased as we have moved through the first 70 years of the nuclear era? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know of extant evidence measuring background radiation before, say, 1945. I'd have to go back and, and work it out. However, there are studies which measure the amount of radioactive fallout from the atmospheric test bomb. If you go back to the early reports of UNSCEAR, UNSCEAR stands for United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, you can find older reports which discuss the amount of radioactivity in the air. Now, that is, doesn't fully answer your question. You talk about dose. And getting from radioactivity, say from cesium astronomy, to dose is very complicated. But you can get a proxy on it. Your next question is, how much has that increased? It certainly has increased, but I would have to go back to my and crack open the books to figure out by how much. Can I give you another little anecdote? And that is this. When they are making radiation meters, detection equipment for radioactivity and radiation, 
they have to use metals which have got very, very low amounts of cesium and strontium in them, right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise they screw up the readings, right? It's going to skew the results, yeah. Exactly, right. And do you know where they get the metal for that? No. From World War I battleships sunk up on the north of Scotland after the end of the First World War, German battleships, but they were scuttled up a place called Scapa Flow. And they go down there and they get this, this steel from that, it's very expensive, and use it in order to get what they call low background steel. That's the only way they can trust that it hasn't been yeah. contaminated yeah. by radiation. Yeah. yeah, because it's been in the bottom of the sea since 1918. So let's keep going with this to understand the compare and contrast. You've talked a little bit about linear no threshold, and we can get back to that. But in contrast, what are the hormesis people saying? By the way, I usually say hormesis, no, whore uses for believing and talking about this as though it's something credible. But anyway, <laughs> we can drop that bad joke for now. And what is hormesis theory saying, and where in the world does this thing come from? In the 1950s and 1960s, there were a lot of radiation biology experiments in cell cultures and on little uh, lab animals like rats and mice. That they were done to figure out what the effects of radiation were. Some of those studies showed, some by the way, not all, maybe about a quarter of them, showed that if you gave a tiny little dose to these lab animals and then followed it up later, say an hour later, with a bigger dose, like say, start off with a little tickle dose of one millisievert and then gave them one sievert, a thousand times bigger, and looked at the results, you would find that the cells or the mice who had received a tickle dose did better than the mice who had not received a tickle dose. Right? That's really obscure, but okay. It's not all that surprising. There is evidence for that in chemistry as well. But the it's key thing is this. It's irrelevant for radiation protection. Let me tell you why. All of us, again, it comes down to background radiation, all of us get tickle doses every day of the week, every day of the year. Does that mean that we're therefore protected from other doses of radiation coming in the future? Well, how would we tell? <laughs> I mean, the point is that we're all, we're, all of us are exposed to it. Another way of looking at it is this. We know from experience from, not from experience, actually from uh, a lot of studies, epidemiological studies, that background radiation itself is harmful. And there's quite a few studies showing that now. We know, for example, that about 20% perhaps of all background cases of leukemia are due to radiation. Some people think it may be even all background cases of leukemia. Leukemia occurs in children naturally. There's a natural occurrence rate. And some scientists think that part or all of those is due to background radiation. So that knocks this, this whole theory of radiation being good for you right on its head. It just makes a nonsense of it. Here's another example. Most people don't get big doses of radiation, okay? The only place where I can think of where people deliberately get big doses of radiation is in radiation therapy. In other words, those people who need to get high radiation doses to deal with a thyroid cancer or a big lump in their brain or a tumor somewhere or other, 
those people, the people who are receiving radiation therapy, do get big doses, right? Did we give them a little tickle beforehand? No, we don't. Of course we don't. If you were to mention that to therapists who work in the hospital, they would think you're crazy. We don't do it. Or here's another example. Think about nuclear workers who work in nuclear power stations. They're exposed to relatively high levels of radiation. Instead of getting a millisievert a year, which is the background rate, they may get a millisievert every two weeks, something like that. Do they show that they are more protected? No, they don't. They show a healthy worker effect, but they show the healthy worker effect for everything, whether it's asbestos levels, whether it's dioxin levels or whatever. Ordinary workers are cut above the frail people who are old or sensitive people who are young. So apart from the healthy worker effect, no. So there isn't a lot of evidence or helpful anecdotes or experience that shows us that hormesis is useful concept in radiation protection. In fact, it's the other way around. Many official studies have shown that it doesn't have any relevance whatsoever for radiation protection. Then what do you believe led the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to take these three petitions so seriously that they now have them up for public comment and it looks like they are seriously considering replacing linear no-threshold with hormesis as the standard for evaluating dangers of radiation exposure? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I've mentioned in the paper that I wrote that it's clear that the NRC must have some sort of discretion to discard frivolous or mischievous or time-wasting petitions. And it's a bit worrying that they have taken these three petitions on board. I don't think it's much use to speculate why they accepted it. What is the danger, then, of the NRC taking these petitions seriously enough to put them up for comment? The dangers are that they may take it seriously and act on it. I hope they don't, but you never know. There are a few things on our side, though, and I hope your listeners will take heart of this. In my report, I've listed about half a dozen or so United States official bodies, which appear to me to be highly questioning of this nonsense about hormesis. Put it this way, a number of their scientists have engaged in studies which show that the LNT is the appropriate model to use. And these are big bodies like, for example, the Centers for Disease Control down in Savannah, Georgia. Oh, sorry, Atlanta, Georgia. There's the NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. There's the United States Department of Energy. There's the United States Environmental Protection Agency. They're listed in the report that I made. These are heavyweight organizations. They've got good scientists working on them. They're not compromised like the NRC. And I'm very much hoping that the NRC will listen to what they have to say. The problem with the NRC, and I say this with the best will in the world, is that they have a very bad track record when it comes to regulating the nuclear industry. Indeed, a number of environmental groups think that instead of regulating the industry, they're basically a promotion outfit. 
They're the biggest fan club for the nuclear industry. You get no argument here? I don't like saying that, but there's a lot of evidence suggesting that the NRC is very, very badly captured. I mean, basically, the, the old saying is it should be a, a watchdog, but instead it's a lapdog. Well, that metaphor is not strong enough now. The NRC really is rooting and tooting for the nuclear industry. And there's a reason for it, because the American nuclear industry is in decline right now. There's about half a dozen reactors closed down. There's more scheduled to close down. Because they're all, most of the reactors in the United States are past their sell-by date, and they're going to have to close down. That's basically a certificate for the NRC to saying, right, you're going to go as well. And they're fighting for job protection, basically. Well, that's not good enough. Um, that might be all very well for the staffers of the NRC, but it's not good for us. It's not good for people or the environment, which is their slogan uh, about who they're supposed to be protecting. Now, something that it's important for listeners to understand, and that you've referenced a number of times, is this really terrific written report that you have on your website. It's a PDF, which sets out the entire issue here and is a complete refutation to hormesis. What is the report and how can people access it? It's an 11-page report. What it does is it sets out the main arguments that are used by the hormesis advocates. Another phrase for them, by the way, is radiation deniers. Oh, that's a much better one. Thank you. I'll use that from now on. Okay, radiation deniers. I've tried to use less inflammatory language and use the language that would be used by one scientist to another in an official publication. After all, I am a scientist, therefore I have observed the rules of the game. So my report is written as if it had been commissioned by a public body and basically what they want is disinterested views. In other words, unbiased, straightforward, factual findings that isn't highly colored um, or doesn't use, as I say, inflammatory language. What I do is that I look hard at the evidence that is used by hormesis advocates to see whether, in fact, it stands up or not. And what I find is that there is a little bit of radiation biology evidence However, it's by no means conclusive. There is just as many studies, in fact, even more, which don't show this effect. But even if it were to accept it, it wouldn't mean anything in terms of radiation protection. It would be irrelevant. And the reasons I give is because, well, we all have exposures to small amounts of radiation every day. Uh, much smaller than the amounts used in these radiation biology experiments, by the way a millisievert over a whole year, which is what the background level would be for, for gamma radiation, isn't very much radiation. And I put in my uh, report, how would we tell if there were any benefits from this? Well, we can tell. <laughs> and even if we could tell, what would it matter? We can't avoid background radiation. In other words, it's irrelevant. So it sounds like this is false science, bad, put it in quote, science, of a propaganda sort to try and push forward an unscientific basis for evaluating radiation dose. 
Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it. I would say that some people are unable to accept that radiation has, low-level radiation has effects. In particular, in Japan, many Japanese scientists, I've noticed well over the majority, don't seem to be able to accept that radiation has its low-level effects. What it would do is it would force them to frame Fukushima in a very different way for yes. the populace. And I think that there's tremendous yes. pressure on mm -hmm. the doctors over there and the researchers to yes. not only not tell the truth, but not be able to tell the truth or be challenged, we know in various cases, with losing their ability to practice, losing their funding, losing their job. Oh, yeah. So yeah. getting back to this report. Apart from mentioning hormesis and basically taking it apart, it also shows the linear no threshold evidence. There's about at least seven or eight studies, and they've all got graphs, and they all show straight lines going down to zero dose. And these studies are, for example, from radiation workers at Chernobyl. They are people who've been exposed to radiation therapists in Canada and the United States, nuclear workers in Britain, people who received radon exposures in Norway and Sweden, and also background radiation too. That's, that's another thing. There's about six examples that I give of where people have received small amounts of radiation and there are very large studies. In other words, these studies cannot be refuted because of uncertainty. These are studies which are very powerful indeed. They've got good, narrow confidence intervals. We can be quite sure that the findings are accurate. In other words, I would say that the evidence is incontrovertible, that the relationship between dose and risk is linear, and it goes all the way down to zero. To access this report, where would they go and what would they have to click on? My website is www.ianfairley.org. And by the way, Ian Fairley is spelled as follows. I-A-M-F-A-I-R-L-I-E. And if you go into my website, you just type in NRC and it'll come up as well. Ian Fairley, as always, it's a joy to have you here, and thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Again, it's my pleasure, Libby. All the best for now. That was Dr. Ian Fairley. His report on hormesis, what's wrong with it from a scientific analysis, and why it must not be used as a basis for determining radiation health risks, is available on his website, ianfairley.org, and we'll also have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 361. That was Dr. Ian Fairley. His report on hormesis, what's wrong with it from a scientific analysis, and why it must not be used as a basis for determining radiation health risks, is available on his website, ianfairley.org. And of course, we will also link to it on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 361. Activist shout-out! Lots of actions to take this week, and you can participate from the comfort of wherever you work on your computer. As Leona Morgan mentioned in her report, letters are needed to the NRC to tell them no nuclear waste dump, interim or otherwise, in New Mexico. While you're at it, you can also say that you don't want it in West Texas either, because that's the other part of this equation. 
Susan Corbett, chair of the Sierra Club Nuclear Free Campaign, is raising money to fight the planned high-level spent fuel dump in New Mexico, and I would assume West Texas as well. Funds are to go directly to the Sierra Club chapter fighting this battle, which will include a legal intervention of the license. Yeah, let's get those lawyers involved on our side. SecureFoodAndWaterAction.org has put together a petition against moving forward on making Nevada's Yucca Mountain the storage site for high-level radioactive nuclear waste. Do you catch this theme going on this week? Well, if you think something in Nevada is not going to impact you, I invite you to guess again. That waste could pass through communities in 44 states on its way to Nevada, with all the dangers of train transport that Leona Morgan mentioned in her report. This would endanger water sources and families every step of the way. The House of Representatives has already passed a bill to re-engage at Yucca, so now it's up to the Senate to stop it. There's a petition for you to sign to raise your voice to help support the senators in stopping Yucca Mountain. And looking internationally, Kumar Sundaram of Dianuk.org the Indian nuclear group, has put together a petition against the spread of nuclear weapons into South Asia. It's specifically aimed at getting India and Pakistan to sit down for talks, just as North Korea and South Korea recently did. You have to start somewhere. Links for all of these actions will be up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 361. So take a moment, go there, Click on one, click on them all, just do it, please. And a brief update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. Progress is being made. It's moving ahead. The two chapters that were making me nuts have been whipped into shape, and now I'm working with the editor's notes on the second half of the manuscript. I've also gotten exciting news about setting up a way to pre-order the book so that you can be first in line when it becomes available. My intention is to have that in place within the next two weeks, and you will have more details when they're available. Here's today's final thought. I ain't got one! It happens that way sometimes. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 22, 2018. Material from this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunradar.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, portlandtribune.com, energy-northwest.com, thestate.com, bloomberg.com, app.com, Jasmine Bright Communications, JapanTimes.com, TheJapanNews.com, John LaForge and NukeWatch, PopularMechanics.com, MotherJones.com, TheHill.com, TheGuardian.com, Telegraph.co.uk, TheConversation.com, The Soul Dead Cubicle Drones Who Grind Out Press Releases for World Nuclear News, The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, And thanks to Erica Gray for always bringing to our awareness what's going on at the nuclear reactors. Special thanks this week to Hervé Courtois of Rainbow Warriors and Scott Portsline of TMI Alert for their help with the audio of Leona Morgan. Jan Ort of Three Mile Island Survivors helped point us towards this week's numbnuts 
And Mimi Gurman of No Nukes Northwest, along with Julie Wirt of Radiation Watch, helped with input on the CGS Scram story. And of course, as always, a big shout out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. All of you in 123 countries on six continents and counting. Still looking for Antarctica. Haven't gotten there yet, but trust me, I will. And let's hear it for everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. Those of you who care to hear what's going on, show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness that you are. Thanks for visiting the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. If you haven't stopped by yet, please do. Stop by, check it out, put up your feed, have a cup of tea, cup of coffee. Click like, follow, post, and share. And you can find all of our back episodes, all 360 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com. To scroll a little faster, if you don't know an exact date, just put slash blog in the URL, and you'll be able to scan 10 episodes at a time. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, Accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down a bit and look for the yellow box, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We really appreciate your support. This show is copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that radioactive nuclear waste is forever, which is why we need to stop making any more of it right now and figure out to do with the mess of it we already have. There you go. You just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.